this context, and we'll turn to it in just a second, in Luke the seventh chapter. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, and as my habit and pattern, I'll have it on the overhead as well for us to read together in just a moment. But the thought, I think, of love and gratitude, I hope is at the center then of what you feel today. Uh, because after a long, long duration, I think this is going on nine weeks now, we've not been able to assemble together. And I don't know about you, but it always renews in me when absence, the old saying goes, absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think it's very true then for things that we would do weekly that might become uh, routine to then not have them for a while and then get back to it and realize what you have. And so just as then there's a lesson in it as it relates to us finally coming together again today, I think there's an important spiritual principle that's at the heart of it. And as we go through today, I'll bear out some other things that I think are important for us to reflect upon then is as we consider what it means to have in our hearts love and gratitude. So let's first start by reading this context together from Luke the 7th chapter. It's an extended reading. Uh, but we'll, I think, understand very clearly what Jesus' point is. As the master teacher, he makes it so very, very well. So beginning there, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she was wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with them began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And with all stories and parables that Jesus would give, there's a very simple but important lesson that comes from this. And so the things that we have in front of us are the contrast between two people. And I think by virtue of the parable as Jesus has set it up, the he clearly identifies who would be the parallel with the person as in, defined in his parable, the one that owed 500 denarii. That's the sinful woman. And he identifies her as such. But then you've got the 50 denarii person. And I think by virtue of the way that Jesus has set it up and the lesson that he's giving to Simon is, Simon, 
Simon, you're the 50 denarii person. And that's an important thing to recognize for even us because no matter what you've done in life, we all have these kinds of debts, so to speak, that are ours. They're nobody else's. They're ours. And so whether big or small, we all bear that same debt. That's the core heart of the lesson. But then, do we love Jesus more or less? And I think this is the real core point of it. Do we love Jesus more or less just because of what I owe? And there's a real, real important uh, set of thoughts that I think come from this because of what we see in human behavior. The one who owes much and is forgiven much tends to love more, recognizing what they've been forgiven, than the one that maybe owes less. Now, should that be? No, that should not be. Jesus calls Simon out on that and says, I came in, you gave me nothing. You invited me into your home, but yet you gave me no water, you gave me no greeting, you gave me no care. But yet this woman, who's a sinner, who's somebody who doesn't even, in your eyes, merit her presence around me, is the one that has done all these things for me. And so there's something really, really important, I think, that comes from this as it relates to love and gratitude in our hearts. Because let me say, in a time like this, in our own present day, it is easy, it is easy to be distracted about all the things that we don't have anymore. It is easy to become discontent with whatever inconveniences that we have to deal with now. But we do need to recognize that in spite of all of that, we have been forgiven much. And does that dominate our thinking? Does that is that what is at the core of who we are? Is that how we go about ourselves every day? That is the thing that I want us to ponder today. Primarily oriented from the perspective of what we've been granted because of who Jesus is. And so I want you to think about three questions, if you can, with me as we go through this. First of all, do I focus more on what I don't have instead of what I do have? That's one lesson that I see from this sinful woman is is that she was clearly focused on what she did have being in the presence of Jesus. Second, do I recognize what I have been given through Jesus but never deserved or earned? And I think she came clearly not expecting anything, but yet she walked away receiving much. And I think she recognized that by virtue of what we see written for us. And then last, do I appreciate the personal cost of God and Jesus for what it took to grant us salvation? And therefore, how much does that dominate your thoughts, your thinking, the way you look at life, the way you go about things every day? Because it should. It should. So now let's look at a few things as we go through. First of all, recognize this attitude, this outlook, this view, is not a part-time, it's not a, I'll do it when I feel good. It is an always statement. Always. And I want you to recognize from what the instruction that Paul is giving here to the Thessalonians, how many times he uses that all-encompassing word of always or everyone or all, 
And I'll tell you, as I've come to study the, the Scripture and I listen to somebody, if somebody says something once, you listen. If somebody says something twice, you pay attention. If they say it four or five times, do you think he's got a point? I think he does. And so from this, we need to recognize what Paul is telling them and by virtue telling us. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do we understand, and I challenge myself with this, okay? Do we understand how committed committed that instruction is? Because that's not an instruction of do it when I feel good, do it when circumstances are good. He tells them clearly otherwise. Give thanks in all circumstances, not just the good ones. Do good to everybody and rejoice always. So do we go through with the commitment, I'm not saying that your heart's always going to be there, but do we go through with the commitment to be an always people and always rejoicing and an always love and gratitude in our hearts? Because unfortunately, as given to us by the example of Eve, it is easy to lose focus on what we do have as a relationship with God. Reading over here in Genesis, the third chapter, verse 6, and I think you're familiar with the context. The serpent approaches Eve, tells her these things, but then this is what happens with Eve. Eve fundamentally lost focus and turned her focus from God and what she had granted through his creation to now what she didn't have by virtue of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She fundamentally lost focus and then focused on what she didn't have versus recognizing what she did have. Coming to that first reflection question I want you to consider. And so this world, this life, is strewn with things to pull your focus away. All over the place. Things that might be desiring to the eyes, things that might be irritating, things that might be frustrating, things that might be more desirable than what you think you have. The challenge for us all, though, is is to recognize and keep our eyes focused and fixed on Jesus, recognizing what we have through Him. Very fundamental lesson. The other, second, is, is our attitude conditional in some way? Jesus, in his teaching in Matthew, the fifth chapter, the Sermon on the Mount, has this section in it that fundamentally tells us life is not always going to be fair. It's not going to be the way we want it to be. And there are injustices that will happen as we go through life. And so, therefore, what should our attitude be? So he gives them two instructions here, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone faces forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so... Here coming as instruction from our Lord and Savior at the very beginning of his ministry and the emphasis and the foundation that he's laying out, we must, must recognize that how we go about and we conduct ourselves with people is in no way conditioned on how they treat us. It's not conditioned on our circumstances being good or favorable. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to conduct ourselves this way when it is the worst. And I'm going to say right now, right now things are in our time and day, things are not fun. I will tell you they're not the worst. I've been in lots of places around the world. So in no way make any misunderstanding as if we've got it bad. We do not. We do not. Okay, by a mile. It is inconvenient. But don't let that steal, don't let that steal your joy away. Because it will. It will. It will steal your joy away if you choose to focus on the wrong things. And then second from that is, if we allow our joy to be stolen away from us, then you're likely also going to have the wrong reaction, which was the worldly reaction that Jesus called out here. Right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That one's easy to do if you're upset and frustrated and angry. Right? If you go through and you say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and you say, oh, that, that group of people, those are my enemies, so therefore it's okay for me to hate them. That's easy to do if you think about them as just your enemy. But Jesus tears all that down and he says, no, none of it. doesn't matter. Nothing's preconditioned upon how we react and how we should interact with people and what we do. But life is not always fair. So out of this then, if you want God-given peace, if you want to be happy inside, if you want to be able to have happiness on the outside, then do what Paul admonishes the Philippians here in 4th chapter beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, and there's, there's going to be a series of superlative words used that we're supposed to focus on. And he gives us a great many ways to think about this so that we understand how you can look at sometimes a messed up world and still find the way to fuel your attitudes and, and beliefs and outlook on life. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So you find yourself challenged at a point in time when anger or frustration or disappointment or 
resentment or depression takes hold, change and shift your focus. That's what Paul tells the brethren here to do. And to dwell on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And we will find the peace that God grants us. So that's at the heart of it. You want the peace of Christ to rule in your heart? Well, first of all, I want you to note we must let the peace of Christ rule in our heart. What does that mean, the word let? That's permission. So that means we must permit Christ's love to rule in our hearts. But do you recognize on the other side of it, it does mean that you can reject the peace of Christ that He has to offer to you. You can reject it. And so let's read this then as we go through and understand how we permit, how we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Beginning in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So understand what it takes to enable permission. It means we must transform what we are with the attributes that Paul was telling them about. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness all surrounded and wrapped by our love that we have for people and ultimately the love that we have for God and for Christ. That's what it takes to give God permission, Jesus' permission for His peace to arrive with us. If we think that we will find peace and not do this, that's foolishness. So we need to think about this very seriously. What am I doing to cultivate my heart in the ways that Paul identifies. Going back to Philippians, the second chapter, beginning in verse 14. In order to be glad and rejoice, and again, he sets up a contrast here, there's one thing that should be absent from our lives that he starts with by saying, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's that other all-encompassing word, all. And there's nothing left out of that, brothers. There's nothing left out of that. So, from that then, if we do all things without grumbling and disputing, here's what happens. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Let me pause there for just a moment. It didn't take a pandemic for us to recognize that we live in a perverse and twisted and crooked generation. The world's already made itself self-evident about that well before we ever got to the last two and a half months. So don't think that for just some reason, now all of a sudden we've got to pay attention to this, or something's magically happened in just the last two and a half months. 
Did this generation, this world's changed anything? Because it hasn't. This world is as broken and as messed up as it was from the time that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And there's a lot of really messed up stuff that happens. And there's a lot of really messed up things that other people do to other people. That's not new. So let's recognize there's nothing extraordinarily noteworthy about the fact that we're in a pandemic and people's uh, animosity flares. Some groups want to do harmful things to others. That's nothing new. But do we recognize out of that the attitude that we're supposed to have to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish while we're in the midst of all this mess? Because we're not going to get out of it. I hate to say that. Not as if things don't ebb and flow and they could get a little more painful and less painful. But this world is what it is. And it is just crooked and perverse. So let's understand that. But the purpose is, is among you so that your you shine as lights in the world. Why is that important? Holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There's a very sobering context that's stuck with me for years. Don't know why. Sometimes I'm sure you read Scripture and it does the same for you. But this context from Revelation, the sixth chapter, for some reason with me, has always stuck with me. It helps me understand what it means to be patient in a time of adversity, even to the point where people may be dying because of that. And that's sad, and that's painful, and that's hurtful, both to those that have to experience as well as those that love those that are being hurt and pained and perhaps robbed of life. But do we understand that in the greater context of things, that is just a mere blip of time compared to what God has granted to us? Which is why I think John, as part of his revelation, is important then to recognize coming out of this in Revelation the 6th chapter, verse 9, because those brothers were entering a really perilous time for themselves. Many of them were likely going to die. And I don't know about you, but it's a very common thing to ask a question as we see posed to us here as we read this excerpt from the scene of heaven on high. But then as you read this, recognize what it means for you and me. So let's read it together. Revelation 6, chapter beginning in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Notice one thing. And that's the fact that as we bear witness, some of us will be killed. That's how crooked and perverse this world is. Is that for trying to shine light, you're instead punished by those who don't want to see it. That happens, sad to say. It happens even now in our day and age. So now you've got these that have been slain. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And what was God's response to that? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer 
until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So brothers, can it get worse? Yeah, sure can. What should be our response if it does? The same as he's instructing them here. Continue to bear witness. Continue to persevere. Some may die. Some will be at the altar of God. But all, all will be given a white robe. It'll be worth it. Be painful, but it'll be worth it. And so out of that, we need to recognize what God has said may happen to us. And it's not as if I have to embrace it as if I'm going to have a murder complex. That's not the point. But we do need to embrace the fact that it may happen. It may even happen in this country. I don't know. But the point is, is whether it happens or not, are we bearing witness of who Christ is? Because that's what matters most. And that's what we need to continue to do day in and day out, in spite of how good or how bad things are. And so from this, I want you to reflect again on these three things. Do I focus more on what I don't have and what I do? Do I recognize what I have been given through Jesus but never deserved or earned? And do I appreciate the personal cost of God and Jesus to grant us salvation? As said by Peter in his admonition, in the way that he expressed the gratitude towards God and the Father and Jesus for what they've granted to us. 1 Peter, the first chapter, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now, especially at this moment, as we partake together of His Supper, let us be uh, grateful, rejoice in our hearts for what we do have. Because what we do have has value beyond measure that can be granted by no one else, no one else than our Lord and Savior Jesus.